KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. A ruling to open strip clubs amid public health shutdowns and what that means for other businesses. The order appears to apply not only to the strip clubs, but also to restaurants generally. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Is there any ethical reason for not getting a COVID vaccine? There are probably many reasons why people would not want to get the vaccine. Most of them um, don't balance well with the fears we have now. And food banks are seeing a sharp increase in need. What people are doing to survive food insecurity, plus details on a drive-in screening of All is Calm. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. Right now, San Diego County emergency departments are requiring complete ambulance diversion due to the pandemic. That means ambulances are being rerouted and in some cases turned away because emergency rooms are overwhelmed with patients. Recent shutdown orders across the state were put in place in hopes of easing the strain on medical systems. Despite that, San Diego Superior Court Judge Joe Wolfill ruled yesterday that two strip clubs, Pacers and Cheetahs, could remain open, which could actually reopen the doors of local restaurants, too. Here to talk about that ruling is Dan Eaton. He's an attorney with the law firm Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. Dan, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. So, Dan, what does Judge Wolfell's ruling say, and what exactly does it mean? What it specifically says with respect to the strip clubs that brought this lawsuit is that the state's orders are too restrictive because they have a First Amendment right with respect to a live entertainment, and uh, they have to be allowed to reopen and resume both their live entertainment and restaurant operations. I mean, let's talk about that more. What justification did the judge cite for his ruling? Well, there were a few justifications. Uh, One was that the uh, county had not shown any kind of uh, connection between these operations, whether live entertainment or restaurant, given the restrictions that the strip clubs had agreed to adopt and the spread of COVID. Uh, The judge also relied on the constitutional interest in live entertainment. Interestingly, Judge Wolfell cited the recent Supreme Court ruling in the uh, Diocese of Brooklyn case, uh, which of course dealt with uh, churches. And in that ruling, uh, the court said uh, the constitution is not to be put away and forgotten even during a pandemic. So does Wolfell's ruling apply to all restaurants or just to the two strip clubs that were litigants before him? Now, that's a fascinating question, and it's one that apparently the county is going to ask the judge to clarify. On its face, the order appears to apply uh, not only to the strip clubs, who were the only parties to this action, but also to uh, restaurants uh, generally. 
The interesting issue there is when you read the opinion very, very closely, as I have, the question is really whether the restaurant operations are those that are tied to strip clubs or whether it applies more broadly. And even if it applies more broadly, is it limited to other operations that are like uh, these strip clubs, whether because uh, the operations offer live entertainment or for other reasons? So the ruling seems to be a bit vague. Is that problematic at all? Well, it's potentially problematic, except the judges only decide cases based on the parties uh, that are before them. And it's important to realize that the strip clubs did not bring this lawsuit on behalf of other kinds of business establishments like restaurants. In that way, it's distinguished from the uh, Cowboy Star and other restaurants who are brought a lawsuit seeking a temporary restraining order, which was heard by a different uh, Superior Court judge, which resulted in a November 23rd order by Judge uh, Ken Medell that said, well, the state's interest is strong enough, and I don't think you restaurants have a strong enough uh, interest in the economic uh, well-being that is going to be suffered by these restrictions to overcome uh, the state's interest in addressing this awful pandemic through which we've all been living. What do you think this could mean for other businesses like salons who have also had to shut down during this pandemic? Well, it's not entirely clear. Even the broadest reading of the judge's ruling doesn't include other kinds of establishments like gym and salon. But you can expect that at the very least, restaurants will go in uh, to uh, Judge Wolfville potentially and say, well, me too. Let me uh, try to take advantage of this as well. But understand that general restaurants that don't have live entertainment don't have exactly the same bundle of interests that the strip clubs do. So there could very well be a different outcome. And understand also that in the meantime, the county is not enforcing restrictions on restaurants until this is all clarified. That itself could have a dramatic impact. And so when does this go into effect? And while the county can appeal, is there anything else the county could do at this point? Judge Wolfville's order went into effect yesterday, that day, immediately. And that is why the county decided to suspend enforcement, uh, at least with respect to strip clubs. And then, of course, it also said more broadly with respect to restaurants. The order is in effect pending trial of this matter. Well, trial of this matter uh, is not going to occur for a number of months. And by then, we will have emerged from this nightmare. And in that case, the case will be moved. But in- so- let me ask this question. So basically, this 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 ruling allows even restaurants to open, right? Arguably allows restaurants to open. Remember what I said before is that the ruling continually uses this phrase uh, to San Diego County uh, businesses with restaurant service, comma, such as plaintiff's establishment. That is the phrase that the judge uses repeatedly uh, about 10 or 12 times. The question is whether that means that all restaurants or only those restaurants that come with it, the kinds of features that the uh, plaintiff strip clubs have. Right. And, and also, I'm curious to know if the restaurants, if they were able to reopen, which, I mean, it sounds like no one's going to be enforcing them. That's uh, right. Anything. Uh, if they are if they are reopened, do they have to abide by uh, social distancing mandates or or would they have to have diners eat outside or or is it just are they back open as if there's no pandemic? Mm-hmm. That is an incredibly important point 
because no one is claiming that uh, restaurants and even the strip clubs are not claiming that they are entitled uh, to operate without restrictions. In fact, one of the most important parts of Judge Wolfield's ruling was that after the earlier temporary restraining order he issued, which allowed the strip clubs to reopen, the strip clubs uh, agreed to a broad set of restrictions, 15 feet away, no touching, all kinds of restrictions. Uh, even the restaurants have said that we're willing to abide by the purple tier restrictions. What we don't want is this flat out shutdown. I've been speaking with attorney Dan Eaton with the law firm Seltzer Kaplan, McMahon and Vitek. Dan, thank you so much. Good to be with you. And also this just in, San Diego County Supervisor Diane Jacob released a statement about this ruling moments ago. She is calling for an emergency closed session meeting of the board to, quote, get clarity on the judge's order and the county's position on an appeal. As the first COVID vaccinations take place across America, there are no reports of hospitals requiring their healthcare workers to get the shots. At this point, the decision about whether to get vaccinated is up to individuals and the availability of the vaccine. But as we continue to see more vaccine available and more people eligible to be vaccinated, will vaccinations continue to be viewed as an individual choice? Is a healthy person's decision not to get vaccinated an ethically defensible choice? And on the other hand, would it be right for businesses and organizations to require people to get a COVID shot? Joining me is Michael Kalichman, founding director of the UC San Diego Research Ethics Program and co-founder of the Center for Ethics in Science and Technology. Michael, welcome back to the show. Yeah, good to see you, Maureen. Now, there's been a lot of joy and relief expressed this week about the first COVID vaccinations. But in the background of all that is polling that shows a substantial number of Americans say they won't get vaccinated. What do you make of that contradiction? Well, it's it's not surprising that there would be some people who would say no, because there are some people who say no to almost anything. Uh, what is disconcerting for many is that so high a percentage of people are wary of getting the vaccine. And when I say, what do I make of it? You know, I, I, when you ask what, I, what do I make of it, it seems to me that there are probably many reasons why people would not want to get the vaccine. Most of them um, don't balance well with the fears we have now. So th- what I make of it is, is some concern about this trend. What about people who say they feel this vaccine has been developed too fast and they're wary of it? Is that an ethically defensible point for not getting the shot? It's definitely a good question, uh, but I've had the good fortune to speak with people who are actually working on developing vaccines. And what I've, what I've heard is that um, a really compelling argument that in the face of a dire emergency, resources were made available that have never been made available so quickly. Um, The very finest minds, not just in this country, but in the world, have done all they can to develop a vaccine on an accelerated timeline. Nothing is guaranteed, but it is remarkable how strong the evidence is that what they have is safe and effective. As I mentioned, hospitals are not requiring their eligible staff members to get a COVID shot. So do you see this 
as a matter of individual choice? In this country, almost everything is a matter of individual choice. Um, and I, I was thinking about this just earlier today. The question is, at what point would we require people to do this? How bad would it have to be? Right now, um, it's probably getting pretty close to that mark. Uh, we're seeing our hospitals filling up. Um, emergency rooms are over capacity. We're trying to find medical staff because there aren't enough medical staff. And the cases and risks of illness and death are continuing to rise. So at what point would we require it? My hope is we won't have to. Well, let's say vaccinations don't become required. When does a person's hesitation about getting a vaccination become an ethical problem? Well, it's always an ethical problem. Almost every choice we make is at some level an ethical problem. Um, the ethics, though, that we're dealing with here vary depending on what you decide you're going to consider when you say, how do I dissect this as an ethical issue? For example, um, if I say I want to trust the available evidence that people are suffering from this disease and it's going to get worse unless we take this vaccine, the ethical choice seems simple. You have to take the vaccine. But what if you decide that the ethical question is your fear of side effects for you or your family, um, and you don't believe that um, the virus is causing um, the problems that many of us think are very real? Well, in that case, you balance it in favor of saying, gosh, I need to be cautious. I'm not going to take this vaccine. I, you know, I have to say, my, my role as an ethicist is usually to try and ask questions rather than give answers. But in this case, I think the burden of proof for that argument lies with those who say that, that's, that the virus isn't a problem. And right now, we need an explanation of why are our hospitals filling up? Why are our ICUs maxed out? Why are we losing medical staff? We don't have enough medical staff to be able to to respond to the number of people who are ill. If it's not the virus, then what is it? You know, there's also a strong racial divide over trust in the vaccine, and that's based on the the medical atrocities that African-Americans have been subjected to in our past. So is it more ethical for a black person to decide not to get vaccinated than it is for a white person? I would hesitate to, to judge. Um, whether um, somebody's experience as a black person means that they are more or less ethical because of a choice they'd make. Um, I should also make, make it clear, I think it's really important to remember that this is not just a matter of being black, but being Latinx, being Native American. Um, their life experiences of people in those groups are remarkably and undoubtedly different from the experience of someone like myself who is white. The disparities those groups face are very real. They're well-documented in many ways, but they're certainly documented for this virus. I mean, we, we know that members of those communities are at greater risk of um, becoming infected, at greater risk once infected of serious disease, and then if, if, at greater risk as well of actually dying from the disease. So these disparities mean this group is at increased risk of infection. Their increased risk of hospitalization, increased risk of death. So it seems that those communities arguably should be 
more interested in taking advantage of a vaccine that at this point is probably going to help people in all groups, not just some. But having said all of that, at one level, I understand what it must be like to be part of a community that has been um, basically abused in, in the past, and we need to do better. I've been speaking with Michael Kalishman. He's founding director of the UC San Diego Research Ethics Program, co-founder of the Center for Ethics in Science and Technology. And Michael, thank you very much. Great. Thank you. It's been an interesting topic. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. There was a recent report in the Washington Post about an increase in shoplifting across the nation, but the items being stolen weren't Christmas presents or luxury items. It was food. Retailers say more people are trying to steal food staples like meat or peanut butter, even baby food. Food relief organizations are in agreement that the pandemic and related unemployment are increasing the amount of food insecurity in the U.S. One estimate predicts 52 million Americans will be food insecure by the end of the year. That's 17 million more than last year. Organizations like the Jacobs and Cushman San Diego Food Bank are trying to fill that need, but it's a race to keep up with the growing number of hungry people. Joining me is James Flores, President and CEO of the Jacobs and Cushman San Diego Food Bank. And welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Can you tell us how the need for food assistance has increased in San Diego over the past year? It's, uh, you know, we, we can't make this stuff up. I mean, we went from feeding 350,000 people a month to nearly 600,000 people. And it seemed like that happened overnight. By way of background, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, we estimated about one in seven people in uh, San Diego County, that's about 450,000 people, were termed food insecure. I would be, it'd be safe to say that number is at least uh, doubled. Uh, we may have a million people in San Diego County that are not food insecure. And you must be seeing people then who've never been on a food distribution line before. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we have the people that are working poor and seniors on a fixed income and children living in poverty, even active duty military that we were serving prior to the pandemic. But now there's a whole host of people, uh, a lot of people in the hospitality, a lot of people in the service industry. So many people have been furloughed, have been laid off. And then it's been this roller coaster for them because they go back to, they get unemployment, then they get, uh, they go back to work and then they get, and then they get uh, laid off again. So then they lose their unemployment, that they reapply for unemployment. We have people who have applied for unemployment, but they haven't gotten their money yet. 
Um, and it's just now we're seeing white collar uh, positions being laid off. So we're seeing our numbers uh, rise, uh, especially with the, in this last period of time. Now, the term food insecurity really doesn't describe the worry and the real hunger that people are experiencing. What does it mean, actually, to be food insecure? Well, not having a reliable source of food, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, uh, skipping meals, uh, parents who skip meals uh, so their children can eat. I mean, it's a wide variety of things, but it's basically, uh, there's two parts of that. One is not having enough food to feed your family, feed yourself, but then there's a whole other underlying dynamic that not a lot of people talk about, and it's about having nutritious food. Because sometimes people skimp, they can't afford healthy food, so now they're buying you know, the stuff they can afford, which lacks protein, fresh produce, that type of thing. So now you start talking about poor health outcomes, obesity, diabetes, and you talk about poor academic outcomes for children. So it's not just about food, but it's about nutritious food. James, remind us about what the food bank does. How do you get your food into your warehouse and how do you distribute it? Well, we are, uh, some people uh, refer to us as the Costco of nonprofits. We do not uh, actually prepare meals. That's something our nonprofit uh, partners would do. So we are a supply chain uh, at its very best. And we're really basically giving out uh, groceries, uh, bulk food distributions. So prior to the pandemic, our distribution model, very solid. Uh, We have 200 uh, distributions that we conduct each month. Um, that's our staff, our trucks, what have you, with partners in the community, nonprofits or what have you. So we do that about 200 times a month. Uh, those locations are strategically located uh, throughout uh, San Diego County. And then perhaps maybe the best part, one of my favorite parts of the San Diego Food Bank, we partner with more than 500 nonprofit agencies. So pretty much for your listeners, if they know of a nonprofit that has a feeding program, more likely than not, they're getting the majority of their food uh, from us. So that ranges from, you know, the big guys like Salvation Army and Catholic Charities and Jewish Family Services, all the big agencies that we know are doing feeding programs down to, you know, church groups that have a food pantry and helping 25 or 50 families a week and everywhere in between. Now, with the pandemic, although that uh, distribution model was pretty solid, we saw that we needed to augment that because um, it was still the the lines were doubling and tripling in a lot of our distribution sites and our distribution sites for our partners. So we uh, came up with phase three of our pandemic response, and that's our super pantry program, which we uh, what that is, is we took 35 of our 500 nonprofits and we kind of supersized them and we made them into high volume, high frequency distribution sites at least three days a week. They had the walk-ups and drive-ups and we're pushing through a lot, a lot of food uh, through those 35 sites. And the other 465 agencies and the other 200 uh, distributions are still fully functioning and what have you. But these high uh, velocity, high uh, um, quantity sites are strategically located in the greatest areas of need. Are you accepting in-person volunteers at the food bank? Um, Absolutely. You know, we're part of the, or we're exempt from the executive order. So we've been on the job uh, since day one and our volunteers are also exempt uh, from that executive order. Volunteers are integral part of our supply chain. And so we had a lot of corporate groups that usually volunteered, um, but obviously they all canceled, but we would put up the word asking for individuals uh, to come and they heeded our call. We're actually turning volunteers away. Many of the shifts are already full. Uh, we had to do social spacing. We had to change the size of the, the shifts from 40 to 20 people, but their social spacing, gloves, masks, all that sort of thing. So we have volunteers here six days a week, uh, four nights a week. Just ask people to go to sandiofoodbank.org, do all the necessary uh, registration, start looking for shifts. And even if they look full, keep checking back because we get cancellations all the time. So this is San Diego's way of really rallying around people in need. So if a person 
worried about feeding their family, were tempted to lift some food from a store, what would you tell them the food bank could offer instead? That they don't need to do that. That uh, really there is plenty of food and there's a distribution near their home, near their na- in their neighborhood, where they can get the food they need with complete uh, client dignity. And I would tell them their call to action is sandiegofoodbank.org backslash get help. There's no shame in asking. And that is the other thing, we, the message we want to get out is that there's no shame in asking. And we have people that maybe are reluctant, maybe they're embarrassed. There's no embarrassment. This is what we're here for. This is what we signed up for. There's plenty of food for you and your family. Uh, in fact, we're doing a big distribution tomorrow just for hospitality and um, and service workers that are out of uh, out of work. So there's plenty of food. You don't need to shoplift. You know, just call on your local food bank and we'll help you out. Where can people find out where food is being distributed? SandiegoFoodBank.org backslash get help. We list all of our distribution sites, all of our super pantries, and we're also the regional diaper bank. And we've got about 50 diaper hubs throughout San Diego County as well. And for, you know, young uh, families with uh, kids and they had two uh, parents that were working. Now they're both out of work and they've got young kids. Diapers are so expensive. We've distributed about 6 million diapers since the beginning of the pandemic. So sandiafoodbank.org backslash get help. And there's your call to action. There's plenty of food for everybody. All right, then. I've been speaking with James Flores, president and CEO of the Jacobs and Cushman San Diego Food Bank. James, thanks a lot. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you very much. You know, we just tell everybody, stay calm. Together, we'll weather the storm. Burnout is a common problem for family members who care for disabled veterans. And for many of them, the pandemic has made things even harder. Now, a new program is hoping to give some caregivers a break. Kathy Carter reports for the American Homefront Project. Before COVID-19, Lori Gary of Austin, Texas, had a network of support when it came to care for her husband, Tom, an Air Force veteran diagnosed in 2016 with service-related ALS. And once COVID hit, we had to stop everybody coming into the house. So it was just crazy stressful. Even before the pandemic, Gary's daily responsibilities as her husband's primary caregiver left little time to focus on anything else. Caregiving for me because of Tom's high-level disability is, am I going to get a shower today? Am I going to get to sit down and actually drink a hot cup of coffee? Now, after eight months of nearly going it alone, Gary has received some much-needed help with a free respite relief program from the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. The nonprofit founded by the former senator offers support and resources to military caregivers. Twice now, respite workers have come to Gary's house to prepare meals and clean the kitchen. That's a huge job because Tom has a feeding tube and his food has to be chopped, blended, and liquefied. Those are all things that, in addition to my normal caregiving duties, I have to take care of. So you just tend to forget that it takes a tremendous amount of energy. Professional caregiving company CareLinks and the Wounded Warrior Project donated $1 million each to launch the nationwide Respite Relief for Military and Veteran Caregivers program. The Dole Foundation's CEO, Stephen Schwab, says the organization saw the need as the pandemic has meant military caregivers who are dealing with long-term isolation. Anxiety, depression is skyrocketing among caregivers. And all of that equates to a crisis happening in millions of homes across America right now. In a recent Dole Foundation survey, respite relief was the top need identified by veteran caregivers. 
Still, says Schwab, many have concerns about safety because they're looking after people with serious illnesses. So on a typical day, that veteran, that caregiver, that family is vulnerable. Now that we're inside a pandemic, it can be life-threatening. Schwab says before going into the home, professional health care workers complete a symptom check and recipients are also screened for COVID symptoms. That's important for the health of people like Air Force veteran Laura Narvez, who suffered a traumatic brain injury in 2016 after an IED attack. The blast caused her to suffer post-traumatic stress disorder and also damaged the nerves that control everyday functions like her blood pressure and heart rate. That's why a notice with a red stop sign has been taped to the door of her home near Clearwater, Florida, since March. It alerts any would-be visitors she has a weakened immune system. My doctor called the house and was like, are you staying at home? And I was like, yes, I'm staying at home. Because literally, like, everything they started saying for people who were succumbing to it, um, I was checking all the boxes, basically. Joseph Narvez is his daughter's caregiver. He's also a fellow with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation and an advocate for other veteran caregivers. These days, he hears a lot about how overburdened they feel because of COVID-19. Respite care is paramount. So it's my job now to educate them and where to get help and how to get help. Stephen Schwab of the Dole Foundation expects the program to cover 75,000 hours of care for more than 3,000 caregivers. The next step, he says, is to develop a long-term plan for respite relief. Because we want to change the model of the Department of Veterans Affairs and the ways that they're going to offer respite care post-pandemic on a sustained basis. So those investments are going to be super important. Because after the professionals leave, veteran caregivers are back on duty. And for many, it's a full-time job. I'm Kathy Carter in Tampa. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our general manager, Tom Carlo, is in his last week here at KPBS. After 47 years, he is retiring. Carlo, who started working at KPBS after graduating from San Diego State University in the 70s, began his career working in production and eventually moved into the role of general manager. Since then, he has grown the station into a multimedia platform where news and programming serve the community on television, online, and on the radio. And Tom Carlo is joining us now to talk about the future of KPBS as he transitions to the next chapter in his life. Tom, welcome and congratulations to you. Well, thank you very much, Jade. It's great to be here. You've done so much and seen so much changes in your nearly 50 years at KPBS. What's the main difference you see when you compare KPBS today with the KPBS of, say, 25 years ago? Well, um, you had to say 50 years. It makes me seem so old. But, you know, when I started (laughs) many, many years ago, we were a very small organization. We had about 20 full-time staff and another 20 students who were attending San Diego State University. And we were a simple little educational television station, our radio station. Um, was an eclectic mix of different formats. We had uh, we had um, classical music, Spanish language programming, jazz programming, folk music, community producers. We weren't really reaching very many people at that time. And we've grown into, as you said in the intro, a multimedia organization. 
that focuses on multi-platform distribution, finding our niche in terms of local serious journalism on all platforms. You know, what was your main goal when you became general manager of KPBS? I needed a vision for the future because we were struggling. And not only did we have tough times with the economy in the early 2000s, we were also seeing traditional media of television, radio, and print media um, beginning to lose significant audience to something called the internet and digital. Uh, digital was taking audiences away, and we went through a situation nationwide where journalism and media jobs and TV, radio, and print media were going away, and KPBS was suffering. So I think the vision for me was to capitalize on our strength as a local organization. And our strength at that time was our local radio news that complemented NPR's news. And I felt there was a decline in serious local journalism throughout the San Diego media market. And I took our our strength of our radio local news and said, you know what, I'm going to put it on all platforms. We needed to converge our TV and our radio and our digital divisions internally at KPBS into one content producing division. And at that time, we had 15 people in our newsroom. Now there are 50 people just in KPBS's newsroom. You know, I'm sure you didn't expect your last year here to be impacted by a pandemic. Uh, what's been the impact or the effect of the pandemic on KPBS's audience and revenue? We saw our audience grow. We saw our TV audience shoot up. We saw our digital audience shoot up. Um, our radio audience in the beginning fell a little bit. It fell about 25%, but that's expected because radio tends to be uh, a medium you consume when you're in your car. But our streaming went up and radio has come back. From a revenue standpoint, even though the audience surged to all-time record highs for KPBS, because businesses had to shut down, we saw um, a, a significant drop in our revenue on our corporate side, almost 8% uh, of our operating budget. So in May and June, we had to go through some very challenging times of reducing our budget, reducing our expenses, and really cutting back on some staff. At the same time, we couldn't cut back on our content because there was so much in the news cycle that was happening. Uh, the news cycle did not stop and people expected KPBS to be there. Um, but I think the future is bright for KPBS. You know, the, the outlook for media seems to be constantly changing. What about local commercial television and radio? Do you think they'll remain a viable option in the future? I think local television and local radio will never go away. Young people, and I, I, th I have grandkids, you know, my grandkids, they're not going to listen to uh, live radio or watch, you know, television. Uh, they're not going to tune into the PBS NewsHour at 7 o'clock, but they're going to consume it on their digital platforms. And I think this is hurting local television and local radio. We have to be in the digital arena. And I think local television, is, is in, especially on the commercial uh, side, is, is going to go through a huge shift and change over these next decade. But I think the major networks of NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox may consider not 
having a relationship with a local television affiliate anymore. You don't need them to get to the consumer. You know, tell us about Nancy Worley, the new KPBS interim general manager. What's her background? Well, you know, Nancy has uh, been with KPBS almost 18 years now. Um, she is a graduate of San Diego State University in communication, but she went off and was producing television news in Las Vegas and in Reno. And then she spent three years working for United States Senator Harry Reid uh, from Nevada in Washington, D.C., in the press room there. And she did that for three years. And then we brought her in, uh, I believe, in 2003 and uh, working in communications. And, and, and she just started rising up in the organization. And five and a half years ago, um, I promoted her up to the associate general manager position. And she oversees TV and radio programming, uh, the news division. I'm very excited that Nancy's going to be starting as the first woman general manager in January of 2021. And so Tom, finally, uh, how do you plan on spending your retirement? You know, I'm going to spend a little more time at home and uh, spend a little more time with my, my kids and my grandkids and just enjoy being a KPBS supporter and member. My wife and I will continue to be Producers Club members. Um, I'm really planning on becoming more of a listener and a viewer and a digital consumer of KPBS content. I, I really can't wait to see KPBS really flourish over these next few years. I've been speaking with KPBS General Manager Tom Carlo. Tom, thank you and congratulations again. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diego Opera is planning a drive-in screening of its All is Calm, the Christmas Truce of 1914. The production was recorded by KPBS for broadcast back in 2018. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with San Diego Opera's director, David Bennett, about trying to plan an event as lockdown rules are changing. David, the opera has decided to play All is Calm in a drive-in setting. Now, even though you made this decision, things have changed recently that are impacting you. So tell me, where are you at right now with the idea of presenting All is Calm to audiences? Well, calm is a good word, isn't it? So we are, we're trying to remain calm uh, in a shifting sea, right, of circumstances. So clearly what we're trying to do is make sure that we can do this in a safe way, right? And guaranteeing the safety of everyone, not just the audience, but also 
our employees is paramount to us because we had a huge success with Lava Wim in terms of safety. So we want to follow that up with another big success story. <clears throat> so we we know that drive-in theater movies are an approved activity, even with the new announcement by the governor. So we have two of those that are two places that are holding those right now in San Diego. So we know that aspect of it is going to be approved and can be safe. We are still getting approval of whether we can have the 30 minute concert of live singing that we are trying to hold. And the plans for that is to have eight members of our chorus, so it's not a large ensemble, uh, spaced safely in the way that we did during Lava Wind, which is each singer having 120 square feet of their own territory, so they stay very far apart. So, so that's kind of where we are with it, yeah. Now, explain what people will be getting in terms of All Is Calm. This is not a live performance, but this is a performance that you staged. That's correct. So we had we did All Is Calm in 2018, and it was it had a live telecast on KPBS, which, of course, KPBS filmed it beautifully. It's a very, very beautiful video capture of that performance. We had intended to do a live performance this year. Safety is not allowing us to do that. So we decided to try to take advantage of that beautiful capture that we have. And we're going to be showing it at a venue that has been built at Del Mar at the racetrack called Concerts for Cars. And it's a round stage with four screens and cars parked all the way around it. So you have a lot of proximity to the stage. And if we're allowed to, it'll be preceded by about 30 minutes of live holiday singing by members of our chorus and a sing-along portion. So encouraging people to be in their cars and enjoying that experience. And then the performance itself is about 70 minutes. So all in all, an hour and a half, seven o'clock to 8.30 uh, on December 21st. And of course, we know that's the first week that school is no longer in session. So by that Monday, after the weekend, uh, parents might be looking for a safe thing to do with their children, which this would be wonderful. It's a, it'll be a safe activity and also a beautifully, uh, it's a family-friendly, beautiful performance. So that's what you should expect. And is this the production of All Is Calm that you partnered with Bodhi Tree Concerts? It is. It was a co-production with Bodhi Tree and Soccer Profana when we did it two years ago. Correct. And why do you feel that it's important to have a production of this in some shape or form in this particular time? Well, you know, what we learned from Boheme, the La Boheme that we did in October, is we're missing not just seeing live performance, but everyone is missing a communal experience, right? We spend so much of our time in a conversation like I'm having with you right now, where we're all in our own individual homes, right? And the opportunity is for, for us to find a way to be together as a community safely is a very important thing. And I think around the holidays particularly, right? So that's why I think it's important. And it's a beautiful performance, right? It's a very, very beautiful production and we did a beautiful performance of it. And it's a family friendly story with music that you recognize telling um, an experience. It's, it's uh, kind of an overwhelmingly moving uh, story for this time. And for people who may not be familiar with All Is Calm, this is about the Christmas truce where, you know, we're talking about having this communal experience. And this is this very interesting sense of enemies at war being so close to each other that they could literally like hear each other singing and talking. Right. And it was, you know, when it was the warring factions, it wasn't the 
you know, the commanders that made this decision. It was actually soldier to soldier, sing, hearing the singing across no man's land in the opposite trenches and coming out and actually sharing the experience of Christmas Eve together and playing sport and ultimately burying their dead. For a single night, no man's land was every man's land. And we, the lowest of the ranks, achieved what the Pope himself could not. In the middle of the war, we had ourselves a merry Christmas. Uh, so it really is a story about using Christmas as an opportunity for a collective communal experience. And that's why you decided to try and do this drive-in experience as opposed to just broadcasting it again? Yeah, and again, that, that gives people in the safety of your car, so the people that you're with in your car are people that you know you can be safe with, and you're parked four or five feet away from another car. And so as I said at La Boheme, and when I was on stage before, turn and wave to the people next to you because they are, in effect, your seatmates, like if you were in a theater, uh, but you're experiencing this with them together. So there is a sense of community when you have a drive-in experience. And how is it for the opera as a company to have to deal with this constant pivoting because not only have you come up with the solution of, oh, let's do a drive-in, that's safe, but then we have this increased lockdown, which changes it yet again. I mean, you guys have to move fairly quickly. We do. And so I think with, like all arts organizations, our time horizon for planning has become, you know, daily and weekly as opposed to long-range planning. And, you know, opera is inherently sort of a long-range uh, planning uh, activity we tend to book our main operas two to three years out, right? With the artists and we make commitments to the San Diego Symphony of the dates. And so we've had to learn to adjust. Now I will say that coming out of the near closure that we experienced five, almost six years ago now, we've learned to be adaptive and nimble. That's actually, that's actually one of our core values that the company created that it says through nimble adaptation to the changing marketplace, we preserve the future of San Diego opera. And that was written as a response to the near closure. And I think in terms was really thought about financial changing marketplace, but boy, are those words never more true than they are right now. And so we have to learn to be nimble and you, the word pivot is right. We just have to constantly be comfortable with pivoting. All right, I wanna thank you very much for talking about this drive-in version of All Is Calm. Thank you, it's gonna be a wonderful experience. And let's go out with some of the music from All Is Calm. The San Diego Opera's drive-in presentation of All is Calm takes place December 21st at the Del Mar Fairgrounds parking lot. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, 
we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.